Much of the Old Testament book of Proverbs was written by King Solomon. And in the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's a profound piece of wisdom. Pay attention to what's going on in your heart, because what goes on there sets the whole direction of your life. Or to put it another way, watch what you love, because that is what you will live for. And I mentioned that little nugget of wisdom from Solomon because it was incredibly relevant to Solomon's own life. In recent weeks, we've been looking at his life as it's recorded in the book of 1 Kings. And if we're to sum up the passage we're going to look at this morning, the message of that passage is, guard your heart. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 10. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 348, or in the larger print Bibles, 536. And we're going to read from chapter 10, verse 1, through to chapter 11, verse 8. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had in her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir. And from there they brought great cargoes of almug wood and precious stones. The king used the almug wood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace, and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much almug wood has never been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. 
The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three miners of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one on either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. King Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. This is God's word. This passage divides into two sections. First, it gives us a success story. 
And then second, it gives us a love story. Let's look at the success story. And to appreciate the level of Solomon's success, think of it this way. It's one thing for a football team or a rugby team to win their domestic league at home. It's entirely another thing to go and win the European Cup. It's one thing for an author to sell books in his or her home country. It's entirely another thing to be on the bestseller lists around the world. And it's one thing for a king in the ancient world to be successful in little Israel. It's entirely another thing to be a worldwide success. But that is what we find in 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon achieves success and fame that stretch far beyond the borders of Israel. Back in chapter 4, we were told, from all nations people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. But by the time we get to chapter 10, world rulers are not only sending emissaries to check out Solomon, World rulers now are coming themselves. Here we're told about the Queen of Sheba. Apparently, Sheba is in what we know today as Yemen, so below Saudi Arabia on the map. That is over 1,000 miles below Jerusalem. And that's why in the New Testament, this lady is referred to as the Queen of the South. For you and me today, a thousand miles is just a straightforward plane journey. People do those kind of journeys and they don't really bat an eyelid if they're used to it. But in 950 years before Christ, this trip involved weeks and weeks of travel through the desert, not in an air-conditioned plane. This is not the kind of journey a queen would take on lightly. But it seems Solomon's reputation is now so big, this lady just has to investigate it for herself. Could he possibly live up to all that she's heard about him? But there's another reason for her visit. Look again at chapter 10, verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came. The word and is not there in the original text. Literally it says, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon in regard to the name of the Lord. In our English Bibles, the word Lord, when it's all in capital letters, is translating the name Yahweh. It's a personal name. The personal name of the God we meet in the Bible. So to Solomon's credit, his own reputation is inextricably connected to the living God. When people hear about Solomon, they also hear about Solomon's God. And the Queen of Sheba has come not only to see if Solomon lives up to what she's heard about him, this visit is going to tell her what she should make of the God Solomon serves. So she's not just come to get a selfie with Solomon. She's not just coming as an adoring fan. She's coming to see if Solomon and his God deserve the reputation they have. 
Is there anything to this or not? Do the reports that I've heard match the reality? Verse 1 says, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Verse 2 says, she talked with him about all that she had on her mind. And whatever it was she talked to him about, whatever it was that she tested him with, Solomon was equal to all of it. In verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. Literally, there was no longer any breath in her. That is the result, not just of Solomon's wisdom, but also of his great prosperity. The queen goes on to say, I didn't believe the reports could be true. But now I realize the reports didn't actually come close. The reality far exceeds the reports. We know the queen of Sheba is just as interested in Solomon's God as she is in Solomon himself. And in verse 9 she says, Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you, And placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. That is a remarkable thing for this lady to say. As she sits in Jerusalem, bowled over by what she sees and what she hears, she knows what is behind this success story. All of this is blessing from God. All this wealth and wisdom are gifts from God. And the purpose of these gifts is not so Solomon can accumulate more and more bling for himself. God is giving this wisdom and prosperity so Solomon can rule God's people well. So he can maintain justice and righteousness. God has elevated Solomon for the honor of God's own name. And for the good of God's people. And that insight comes here from a non-Israelite queen. Well then we're told she came with impressive presents for Solomon. Spices, precious stones and 120 talents of gold. That's a lot of gold. But the writer of Kings immediately wants to put that in perspective for us. He tells us actually that's just a drop in the ocean of Solomon's wealth. He already has this joint venture with Hiram, king of Tyre, a fleet of trading ships that they run together that brings treasures in from around the world. And down in verse 14, we're told, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 166 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. So this annual income that's mentioned here seems to come from a combination of taxes and trade. And the point of mentioning it here is the Queen of Sheba cannot compete with Solomon. Her lavish gifts are pretty small compared to Solomon's regular income. Solomon has not just gained a place at the table with other wealthy rulers. 
Solomon is eclipsing those other rulers. He's in a league of his own at this point. Look down to verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. God has elevated King Solomon to the highest place. He is the king of kings and queens. And as we've seen, as we've listened to the Queen of Sheba, all of this brings glory to God. The world attributes Solomon's success to Solomon's God. Solomon is known as the king made wise by God the Lord. And if we put this in the context now of the whole Bible, what we have here is not just the high point in the history of ancient Israel. This is a picture of something still to come. Solomon's kingdom is gone. But the rest of the Bible looks at Solomon's kingdom and it sees it as a foretaste of something that's still ahead of us. The eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. The New Testament describes Jesus as the son of David. Solomon's reign was just a preview of Jesus' reign. The whole world of the day came to hear Solomon. The New Testament tells us all heaven and earth will honor Jesus. One day every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will acknowledge he is Lord. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, describes Christ's eternal kingdom as a place of gold and precious stones. And that does not mean we're to expect literal streets of gold and walls and gates made of giant pearls and precious stones. Those descriptions are picking up on the details of Solomon's kingdom. It's the easiest way to tell us about a glorious place that is above and beyond every other place. How do you, how do you describe an indescribable place? Well, the only way you can try to do that is by comparing it with something that we know. And the Bible uses Solomon's splendor to point forward to Jesus' much greater splendor. We've just heard how the kings of the earth brought gifts to Solomon. And Revelation chapter 21 says this about Christ's eternal kingdom. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Solomon's glory has gone. But as you and I read about it, we are being given a preview of much greater glory that's still to come. As we read about the Queen of Sheba and her response to Solomon's glory, we are being given something else as well. The Queen of Sheba is giving us a challenge. She went to great lengths to discover the truth about Solomon. And Jesus said, that lady is just an example to us. 
During Jesus' time on earth, there were people who heard the authority of Jesus' words and they saw Jesus' miraculous power, but they refused to acknowledge this was God at work. And Jesus said to those people, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. If the queen of the south traveled a thousand miles to find out about Solomon, if she was willing to acknowledge what she saw was God's work, then how mad is it, how offensive is it to God when people will not look for the truth about Jesus Christ? Or when they do examine his life, but they will not acknowledge this is God at work. If you only have a vague idea about Jesus Christ, then realize this, that according to the Bible, he is infinitely greater than King Solomon. He's worth your time and attention because when you recognize Jesus for who he is, you will find God. And if you do know about Jesus, but don't worship him as God, one day the Queen of Sheba will ask you, how could you be so stubborn? How could you be so resistant to the truth? Back to 1 Kings chapter 10. We've been presented in this chapter with an incredible success story. And all of it is a blessing from God. But the writer of Kings wants us to consider something else as he tells us all this. Because the very end of chapter 10 raises a question. How did Solomon use God's blessing? God has poured it out on him. How does he use it? And we might think the answer is obvious. He used it well, didn't he? He has a prosperous kingdom. And no doubt for a good portion of his reign, he did use God's blessing well. But chapter 10 has reminded us why Solomon was put on the throne. He is there to maintain justice and righteousness. Back in chapter 9, God commissioned Solomon to live faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness. To do all God commanded and observe God's decrees and laws. And having just shown us the pinnacle of Solomon's splendor, chapter 10 tells us he began to misuse that God-given splendor. And to see that, you and I need to be aware of some specific commands from God. God's law is found in the first five books of the Old Testament. And in one of those, the book of Deuteronomy, we read this part of God's law. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. 
Three specifics aimed at the king in God's law. Don't gather up loads of horses, especially not from Egypt. Don't take loads of wives and don't hoard up silver and gold. Those commands were given long, long before Israel even had a king. God was setting the standard ahead of time. And we've seen God bless Solomon with enormous wealth, not to be hoarded, but to maintain justice and righteousness. So what has Solomon done with that wealth? Well, we had an example of it in chapter 10. He made ornamental gold shields, 500 of the things. They serve no purpose at all except for decoration in his private palace. What did Solomon do with all the wealth? He hoarded it. What else had God commanded in his law? Horses. Don't accumulate those either and don't get them from Egypt. That would be going back to your old slave master who you left a long time ago. Don't get mixed up there again. But look at chapter 10, verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. Huh. Do you think the writer of Kings wants us to ask some questions as we read this? Do you think he's choosing his language very carefully to remind us of the commands back in Deuteronomy? Yes, he is. It seems that despite the wisdom God gave Solomon to rule well, despite all the material resources God poured out on him to maintain justice and righteousness, as time went on, Solomon began to forget God's decrees and laws. He began to rule for his own sake rather than for God's glory and for the good of God's people. How did that happen? Well, it certainly did not happen overnight. Solomon didn't just wake up one day a completely different person with completely different priorities. So what were the roots of Solomon's change? Does Deuteronomy mention anything else the king was to avoid? He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray, Deuteronomy says. Elsewhere, Deuteronomy is even more specific than that. Don't marry foreign wives. Why? Because foreign wives worship foreign gods. And they will turn your heart away from me, God said. But look what we're told next in Kings about Solomon. In the NIV, chapter 11 begins, King Solomon, however. But the however is not there in the original. Chapter 11, verse 1, is a continuation of what we've been hearing at the end of chapter 10. And it starts, King Solomon and King Solomon, in other words, as well as hoarding wealth and accumulating horses, 
He loved many foreign women. Not all love stories are happy stories. Not all love stories are good for the people who are involved. Some years ago, there was a best-selling book with the title, Drinking, A Love Story. The author of that book was a lady called Caroline Knapp. And in the book, she talked about her own 20-year experience of alcoholism. It was a love story, all right, for her. But it destroyed her life. And we can say the same about Solomon's love story. It was a story of turning from God. Verse 2 says about the many women Solomon loved. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. At the beginning of Solomon's reign, we were told Solomon loved God. That little, simple, three-word statement described him at the start of his reign. But it did not stay that way. One writer says, this is a love story gone awry. And we look at the great numbers of wives here and we wonder what's going on there. And no doubt, there were political reasons for most of these marriages. Solomon was dealing with a lot of countries, a lot of places. And at the time, it was normal practice. You married the daughters of other kings to ensure peace between your nation and theirs. But when God forbade Israel's king to do this, God was not thinking about what was good for politics. He was thinking about what's good for the human heart. So Solomon may well have achieved diplomatic success through these marriages. But by inviting all these ladies into his house, he opened the door also to the false gods that they brought in with them. And as time went on, Solomon's heart didn't stop loving. It began to love other things in place of the true God. The book of Deuteronomy set out the first duty of human beings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In the New Testament, Jesus called that the greatest commandment. And if God really is God, then nothing makes more sense than to love him with all our heart. Nothing could be more destructive than failing to love him. And nothing could be more detestable than giving our love to other things instead of God. As we read this, it's hard to avoid the sense that it all started with Solomon taking God's word lightly. Why not hoard the wealth God is giving me? After all, it really impresses other kings and queens when they visit me. 
Why not accumulate horses? All the other kings do it. And why not take lots of wives? God's commands don't seem appropriate for my time and my situation. Surely it makes sense to ignore his commands. Some of them anyway. Way back when Solomon asked God to help him rule well, what Solomon actually asked God for was a listening heart. Solomon realized as a young man that wisdom would come not from some kind of implant that would make him permanently wise in every situation. Wisdom would come from an ongoing relationship with God, from listening to God daily and seeking to live for God daily. As Solomon drifted from listening to God, his wisdom left him. Yes, he might still have had plenty of political skill. He might still have been smart when it came to making money. But he lost the wisdom for truly living and reigning well. Disobeying God began to make sense. And over time, the man who early in his reign could be described as the man who loved God He became wrapped up in another love story. He began using his skill and his creativity not for ruling with justice and righteousness, but for building shrines to false gods. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. The first one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. But here, Solomon literally puts other gods before Yahweh. This hill east of Jerusalem is right beside Yahweh's temple. These other gods are called detestable. And they're called that for good reason. The worship of Molech involved child sacrifices. And if that sounds appalling to us today, remember we have our own version of Molech worship. It's called abortion. Since 1967, we mentioned it earlier, 8.8 million children have been sacrificed to our God of personal convenience. Ashtoreth was mentioned back in verse 5. She was a sex goddess. Worshipping Ashtoreth involved ritual prostitution. We could find parallels today in the pornography industry where women are enslaved and abused as a way of life so we can worship the God of lust. And the crazy thing about this is how back to front it is. If we think about Solomon's particular situation, normally in the ancient world, The only time when people took on the gods of other nations is when they were conquered by those nations 
And they were forced to worship their gods. But Solomon does this voluntarily. The man who was raised up by God to become the envy of the whole world turns to worship things that have given him nothing and never can give him anything. It's equally foolish when you and I turn from the living God and his word to things that have nothing for us except dissatisfaction and loss. I heard a pastor once tell about a man that he knew quite well. And the man had chosen to abandon his wife and family for another woman. The pastor lost touch with the man for a few years, but later on he bumped into him unexpectedly to learn that the second relationship was over too. And the man said, I gave up everything for nothing. We could say the same about Solomon. And next time we'll look at the consequences of his turning away from God. In the short term, it leads to a divided kingdom in Israel. And in the long term, it leads to exile away from the land of Israel altogether. If only Solomon had taken his own advice. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Over time, Solomon failed to guard his heart. He allowed it to drift from loving God. He slowly let things slide with little choices that led him off track, little decisions that took him further away from God. Over time, he stopped listening to God in order to obey God. Eventually, he wasn't even listening to God at all. And after a while, disobeying God just seemed like the obvious thing to do. So Solomon abandoned one love story for another. He ended up using the wealth and skill poured out on him by God to worship false gods that deserved nothing and could give him nothing. Earlier we thought about the challenge brought to us by the Queen of Sheba. Do what it takes to find the truth about Jesus. He's the one who's far greater than King Solomon. She said God showed his love by sending Solomon. God showed his love in an infinitely greater way by sending Jesus. That was the challenge of the Queen of Sheba. Do what it takes to find out the truth about Jesus. Now there's a challenge for those of us who call ourselves God's people. Those of us who say we have come to know him through Jesus Christ. The challenge to us comes through Solomon and through his failure. His life warns us to guard our hearts. Don't take your relationship with God lightly. Don't think you can ignore God and ignore his word day after day and still continue to love him. If you try that, one day you'll realize you're caught up in a whole other love story. Something else has captured your heart. 
You're holding fast to something that isn't God at all. Your energy and your skill are serving things that are worthless in the end. I would guess most of us here have actually seen that happen to other people. People who used to sing God's praises right here with us. And where are they now? Maybe you're still here, but your heart is already somewhere else. If that's the case, then do something about it while you still can. Our hearts never stop loving. If they're not tuned to the love of God, they will be taken up with some other love. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we serious about guarding our hearts? Whatever age we are, it doesn't matter. The things that attract us might change with age. They might vary a little bit according to our different personalities. But the issue is just the same for all of us. I'll give you some examples. The New Testament warns us about the evil desires of youth. That certainly includes the sexual stuff. But it probably also is speaking to the youthful insistent that everything has to be new and everything has to be revolutionary. That old truths must be boring truths. On the other hand, how many older people are prone to an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words? We're warned about that in the New Testament as well. We're also told the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's relevant whatever age we are. We're warned that loving this world can be our downfall. That lovers of pleasure are not going to stay lovers of God. We're told that even our stomach can become our God. There's almost an infinite number of things that can take God's place in our lives. Some of them are perfectly good things in themselves. They're good gifts God has poured out on us. But when our heart holds fast to anything that is not God, then you and I are caught up in the wrong love story. And if we don't fight now to turn our heart back, the result will not be good. Not for ourselves, not for our future, and not for the people around us. We're going to close our time by asking God to help us. We're going to do that by singing together, remembering how amazing it is, first of all, that we should be loved by God. And then asking for God's help to fan into flame our own love for him. Let's sing these together.